Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Gabrielle Kunzley. She's professor of history at USC, specializing in modern Latin America. But we're not going to talk about Latin America particularly. We're going to talk about horse racing in South Carolina and in the country and really the world over time. So Gabby, and I have known her for years as Gabby, mm-hmm. welcome to the journal. Thank you so much, Walter. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Alfred, also for inviting me. And listeners, thank you for tuning in today. It's nice to be a guest. I've been listening for years and I've been a huge fan. Muy buenos días a la fanaticada de ETV, la fanaticada hípica. Es un gran gusto poder estar con ustedes hoy día y feliz martes. And I thank you for doing that. Now, who are you and how did you get here? Where did you come from? It's a big question, the origin story. Yes. As relevant to this project, I grew up in a family where languages were very valued. My father's Swiss. I spoke German, Swiss German, very, very young. Then I wanted to add a language. I was between Russian and Spanish. I added Spanish, and I was a little Spanish addict. If they would offer two semesters in one, I would do it. If they would offer summer. And and where was this? McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. Okay. I loved it. And then I did my – I was actually well-stacked for a career in all things European between my family background um, and the experience I'd had in Europe. I speak six languages, French, German. Uh, English, Spanish, and then I added Portuguese, and then I spent three or four years studying Quechua, one of the major indigenous languages of South America that's highly spoken in the Andes. And I studied that at Madison, Wisconsin, where I got my PhD, at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, in Sucre, Bolivia, in Oruro, Bolivia, in Cochabamba, Bolivia, and in Cusco, Peru. I did an intensive institute. Wow. Clearly, with modern Latin America and then you're talking about the Andes, that's where the native languages are so important. Yes. Uh, Most people don't think of this, but in Latin America, it's very common for people to be bi and trilingual, almost the way people think of Europeans. But people think they just speak Spanish. Most people in Bolivia speak Spanish and Quechua, Spanish and Aymara, trilingual, Spanish, Quechua and Aymara. And even if you don't speak the indigenous languages, the very structure of the indigenous languages influences popular Spanish in these regions. I was envisioning these intensive courses you went to as being total immersion, all oral. They had that aspect too. Our teachers in Cusco, the achachich, the teachers, loved to take us to the marketplace. And uh, the market women all, of course, spoke Quechua and Spanish, but we would go out with the assignment of buying something onions, potatoes, tomatoes, whatever you wanted to get. But you had to have the conversation in Quechua. And the market ladies would laugh and laugh. They were so patient and they had such a good sense of humor. And we would stagger back with our little quintal of potatoes. And, you know, that was a victory. Well, did you did you ever, quote, order the wrong thing? <laughs> <laughs> I did indeed. I wanted some scallions and I walked away with, you know, an eggplant. But... Over time, over time, I learned well. So languages were always important. So I was um, directed to, encouraged might be the right verb, uh, join language departments. So I went through in both undergraduate and graduate. I was at one time a German major. I was a French minor. I was a Latin American lit major. In fact, I even began my PhD in languages and lit, which was fine. I actually liked the language and lit department. What I didn't like was um, that I was supposed to understand these books for their own intrinsical merit. You know, a character analysis, uh, uh, you know, what ten, was it in first person or third person and what that means. And I didn't like it. I always wanted to know about context. So I started taking classes outside my degree, my discipline. And it was pointed out to me that I was doing this in Madison. And it didn't take long before the history department asked me to formally apply. And I moved over. Madison was the very best 
Latin American history program in the country, especially if you wanted to study all things in the Andes. And so you got your PhD when? Oh, gosh, Walter. Because um, you, you've been at Carolina, what, 15 years? I'm not sure. Maybe 13. Uh, 2005, I got my PhD. I had a tenure-track gig in Iowa. I like to look behind door two. Uh, <laughs> Notre Dame and South Carolina both invited me, and I liked South Carolina better. I bet you came down here when the wind was whistling through the plains of Iowa and the azaleas were in bloom, which is our, which is the usual scenario at USC in the history department for hiring. Yes, that is a strategy. I remember the highway was closed and I had to crawl at 10 miles an hour to get to the nearest airport and flew out. And yes, yeah, South Carolina was a gem, you know. Okay. Well, you, you've been teaching Latin American history very successfully, but horse racing seems to be your passion. Horse racing is, is definitely my passion. Um, I spent 20, 25 years in the Andes. I still work on the Andes. I published in December with the His Hispanic American Historical Review on the um, critical situation in Bolivia. I still do those things, but my interests have expanded um, into horse racing. And what I loved about horse racing was it enabled me to couple my interest in modern Latin America with questions about Latinos in the United States and, in certain instances, South Carolina. I ended up, um, well, I used to ride. Um, so I always had an affinity for horses and all things equine. But that's not at all like um, horse racing. My God, it's a different world. And I... Like I said, I went to a very demanding PhD program. I front-loaded in life, had kids young. The last thing I wanted was a 1,000-pound animal on top of everything else. And so I moved away from it. And in South Carolina, I returned to it. I guess I started watching horse racing. And I noticed that after the jockey crossed the line, and the, they haven't gotten to the winner circle. If you listened, if you were fortunate to have a microphone near the jockeys, you would hear them speaking all in Spanish. There would be shout-outs to, you know, different states in Mexico, to Virgen de Guadalupe, to family members. There would be joking and commentary between them all in Spanish. By the time you got to the winner circle, it was extremely formulaic. I'd like to thank the owner for giving me this opportunity. I'd like to thank the trainer for his magnificent job. And the horse is, of course, a fantastic athlete. So I began to look into it. And I'd already begun to teach courses at South Carolina, sort of pilot courses on the Latino population in the United States. I was frustrated by the dual discourse that came out in the United States uh, that repeatedly comes out, which is two things. Um, si se puede right? Let's go court the Latino vote. Or look out, they're stealing all our jobs. They're all undocumented. Well, how can they be the population we want to vote and undocumented and stealing our jobs, quote unquote? And people weren't even seeing this sort of schizophrenic discourse surrounding the Latino population in the United States. And so I was eager to address it. I didn't think I would address it via horse racing. Let's stop for a second and talk about the horse racing you went to. Some people may not realize, but horse racing, really professional horse racing, goes back prior to the revolution in South Carolina. Correct. Where South Carolinians imported the best horse stock that was available in England. A lot of that disappeared after the revolution when the British left. They took a lot of that mm -hmm. with them. but. The horse racing, the jockey club in Charleston, yes. all of that predates the American Revolution. Fast forward now to the 20th century and you have the revival of horse racing in several cases, different styles. You've got uh, the steeplechase. The new steeplechase in Charleston. You've got the Ellery Trials, which are more traditional yep. horse racing. With Gory Smith. Yes. And then you've got racing in Aiken. Yes. Anything else? Well, the jockey club in Carolina, um, down in Charleston, is the oldest jockey club in the United States. In fact, I think it predates the Jockey Club of England, and John Irving has a great book on that. Fascinatingly, the Post and Courier newspaper, at a time when newspapers are going under, the Post and Courier has decided to revive the 1700 steeplechase that used to be run in Charleston. And last year in November, 
piloted the steeplechase at Stono Ferry, and they say that they're doing so to revive Southern traditions. I was unable to attend because I was at a different horse race out of state, but I will definitely be there this year. Uh, I've worked many steeplechases in Aiken. I've uh, Camden is a big steeplechase center. But South Carolina is a huge equine state. Places like Ellery and Aiken especially are training tracks. So after a horse comes out of a sale, usually a two-year-old sale, they go to a place. They don't go straight to Louisville or to Belmont or any of the big tracks. They go to a training track where they learn how to be ridden, how to get the tack put on. How to? It's called breaking a horse. Breaking, think of it as the early education of a horse. And both Aiken and Ellery are two of the biggest in this state. There's also a training track in St. Matthews. There's Palmetto Training Center. But South Carolina really tells its history in large part through these horses who are quote-unquote broken in Aiken and then go on to do great things. And actually at one time, certainly right after World War II, um, there was a training facility at the state fairgrounds. Neat. Here in, in Columbia. Here in Columbia, mm-hmm. where one Kentucky Derby winner was was trained. And horse racing used to be part of the annual state fair program, but that's history now. If you look at the geography of South Carolina, you find, I mean, whether you're looking it up with Children's Center or the state fairgrounds, you'll notice again and again the haunting oval, right? There's all sorts of geography of racetrack in South Carolina. And it was terribly important. I mean, the Aiken, the Aiken training track was founded in the 1940s, and Aiken was referred to as the winter colony. Everybody would bring their horses down. The weather was great. There was British royalty who had homes there, Bing Crosby, huge names. The Phipps, the Posts, the Mellons had Rokeby Stable in Aiken. Um, the McNairs, huge families that brought their horses to Aiken. And a lot of these horses have done very well. So places like Ellery or Aiken tell their history through these horses who connect out and put their name on the map. The biggest from Aiken would be Palace Malice, who won several of the Triple Crown races and is one of the most successful sires now. He stands stud. Ellery has got a great operation. My God, he's got some magnificent horses too. And Gory Smith broke Arklow, who ran most recently in the Pegasus World Cup. He also ran in the Breeders' Cup out in in California. He's one of many um, that both these places are putting out. Aiken has a horse, Montauk Traffic, who just won a big race and is um, making a huge name for Aiken Training Track. Among those who know, most people don't talk about who broke and trained the horse early. And it's not covered in the local sports pages. No, it's not, is it? Uh, Gabby, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Professor Gabby Coonsley about horse racing in South Carolina. All right, l- let me ask you about, you, you mentioned the, the horse, Palace Malice. Sure. At Aiken is now out for stud. Um, what what does it cost if you want to, if you have a, a brood mare and you want to have mated with... right. What what kind of what costs are we talking about? So, if you want to breed your mare, and I should know Palace Malice's price. I should say too, every time one of Palace Malice's offspring wins, his stud fee goes up. Okay, so it's a victory for more than just those at the finish line or the horse that crosses the finish line. Breeding fees can range from two thousand to five thousand dollars to. $250,000 a shot, and that wow. would be Warfront at the highest end. Palace Malice stands stud at Three Chimneys Farm. I went to visit him with Lisa Hall, the incredible director of the Aiken Thoroughbred Hall of Fame Museum in Aiken, South Carolina, and we made a trip to Kentucky and got to meet Palace Malice, um, which was quite special. Well, are you a horse whisperer? <laughs> I, I, I was, was not being flipped. Just looking at you, I, I sense that you do. You physically have a rapport with these beautiful animals. 
I'd like to think, yes, that I do. I mean, I go out there. Um, I go out to Legacy Stables in Aiken. I try to go every week. I stand at the rail and watch the development of each horse, what they're working on, if they're recovering from injury, if they're learning, you know, if they're trying to run straight, if they're trying to develop their position, if they're, you know, young horses spook at anything from a shadow to the resident fox at the Aiken training track. But I love to watch the riders as well. Um, Heidi Meredith, a great rider for Legacy Stables, Justin Rivera, uh, Logan Bearden, riding out there and the way that they work with these animals is incredible. It's incredible amount of rapport that horse racing demands. Brad Stouffer and Ron Stevens will tell you, you do A, you do AB, right. you do ABC. Right. Now, now, identify those two gentlemen for us. Ron Stevens and Brad Stouffer are public trainers for Legacy Stables in Aiken, South Carolina. They also both train Palace Malice, and they continue on, so they get horses by huge sires like Megdalia de Oro. There's a hard-spun filly. There's so many huge names. They have eons, Mark Greer's eons, who's won graded stakes races, who's back for some time off in Aiken, and then he'll ship off and return to the big tracks. All right. Explain a stake race. So there are different types of races. There's um, of graded stakes, there's three levels, grade one, grade two, and grade three. Uh, grade one, the most obvious one people might recognize would be the Kentucky Derby. Okay, And it depends. If you're trying to get to the Derby, you have to win other two and three graded stakes races to get points to qualify for the Kentucky Derby. The Kentucky Derby carries a lot of prestige. It's a crazy race, Walter, because you can only run once in your entire life when you turn three. You have one shot in your entire life. 20 horses will get one shot. And to get that shot, you have to compete in all these qualifying grade two and grade three races to try and all mass points to hold a place in the Derby. All right. How many points does it take? Oh, gosh. Right now, Montauk traffic has qualified. He has 52 right now. Okay. So we'll, we'll see if, he, if, if his trainer opts to make him a derby horse. But he's been running very, very well. We have another set of races that are more like it's the Breeders' Cup. And those are races for all age horses. We have the juvenile category. We have the mare and filly versus the male horses at all ages. And that will be a series of 14 races. Okay. Now, in contemporary newspapers and magazines, you will read stories about, particularly in California, horse racing, the Santa Anita uh, racetrack is in trouble. Yes, it is. And horse racing seems to be on the decline. Is that accurate? You know, it's an interesting question. In some ways on a national level, horse racing, horse racing has had a hard year. There's no question. Santa Anita registered a tremendous amount of um, horse injuries and fatalities. They have been working with the surface to change it. The question, dirt versus synthetic, how you take care of the dirt. Track maintenance is a huge, huge theme. A synthetic track? Mm -hmm. Synthetic dirt um, with a certain <laughs> amount of cushion. And it takes out some of the variability of trying to groom and maintain dirt at a uniform level. What you don't want is waves in the track so that it's deeper in some places and shallower than others. I will say this. Horse racing has had a few hits this year especially. And we'll get into that. We'll get later. into that. I think we need to look at what the protesters are saying. And we can talk about that as specifically in the case of Oscar de la Torre, who's become a spokesperson for the people working on the backstretch. In South Carolina, they just completed a state equine survey. So in South Carolina, the equine industry, with thoroughbreds being the second largest contributor, it accounts for nearly $2 billion. $2 billion. $2 billion, and it employs almost 30,000 people. And it is on the rise since 2004. So for South Carolina, the equine industry is quite important. Perhaps some of this is, is due to climate, training facilities, mm -hmm. because you mentioned that, yes, we're having a new stakes race in Charleston, or steeplechase. Steeplechase, um, yeah. So uh, we haven't talked about Camden much. Is that still, I mean, 
you know, people think about the Carolina Cup, the Camden Cup. Sure. Um, sure. Is there as much training going on in Camden? Sure. There's tons of training going on in Camden. It, its hallmark is steeplechase, but they did. It was the, um, I believe she was broken there, Ruffian, one of the finest fillies ever to run, was a Camden product in her for her early training. So Camden's produced a few flat racers, but really their hallmark is steeplechase. Camden will often come to compete um, in their, well, they have their own, the Carolina Cup, and there is a circuit, a national circuit of steeplechases of which Aiken and Camden both figure. We have the harness racing at, oh. yep, at the okay. McGee's Mile in Aiken. Coming up in March, Aiken will host what they call their Triple Crown, their own local Triple Crown. The flat racing will be uh, March 14th followed by the steeplechase the following weekend, followed by polo the last weekend in March, and then at McGee's Mile in early April. It's not part of the Triple Crown, um, but it, it is also on the calendar of equine events. You can go to harness racing. All right. Gabby, early on in the program when we talked about how a professor of modern Latin American history got into horse racing, we found about your background, but you mentioned you were at a race and before – the horses got to the winner's circle. You heard the jockeys conferring with one another in Spanish. Where, which race was that? I don't even remember which race it was, but I saw it and saw the pattern. And so I began, even while I was working on Bolivia, my folks still live in the Midwest. And so when I drive to Iowa, I, stop, I started stopping in Louisville. And I would go to the museum associated with Churchill Downs. I did barns and backside tours. I did farm tours. I did all sorts of things. And on the way back from the Midwest, I would stop in Lexington. I would go to the Thoroughbred Center. I went to farms. I went to the McPeak Farm, Kenny McPeak, a great trainer in the United States, um, from a hot walker. Um, all the way up to the exercise rider and the Hall of Fame jockeys. I could speak Spanish all the time. And I became, you know, the obnoxious tourist. Uh, people would, um, you know, they were asking questions like, can a horse sleep standing up? And I wanted to cut to the chase and get on with it. And where does this incredibly talented body of workers who all are dedicated to the equine industry, where do they come from and why do they all speak Spanish? And so I began to work on the project. Um, I initially thought I'd do the project in Kentucky at the McPeak Farm. And I did talk to Kenny McPeak about it, and he was receptive. But after I met Lisa Hall at Aiken, I decided that I really wanted to locate it in South Carolina, obviously in dialogue with the national setting, um, and look at Southern history and the uh, so-called sport of kings. And I began. It became clear to me that the 10 top jockeys in the United States right now are all Latin American. The top 10 jockeys yes. are all Latin American. Irado Ortiz of Puerto Rico just won the Eclipse Award, which is the Academy Award for horse racing, uh, for the second year in a row. His brother, Jose, uh, has also been uh, decorated with all kinds of awards within the equine industry. Is that for the number of races won? Or? Yes, the number of races won, absolutely. You... Um, what people don't realize is that at each, it's called a meeting. If you're at Laurel Park or Aqueduct or Gulfstream Park or Santa Anita or Golden Gate Racetrack, there's a competition within each racetrack for most races won. Okay? So you have leaders of meetings and then you have on the national scale leading jockeys. This year, excitingly, not only did Ijado Ortiz win best jockey for the second year in a row, but for the first time in history, a jockey who rides exclusively at the Puerto Rican racetrack, Camarero Racetrack in Puerto Rico, a commonwealth of the United States, right? It would have to be within the pool with the United, in comparison with the other United States jockeys. An apprentice jockey, meaning a young jockey in his first year of formal racing, his name is Angel Diaz. He was considered as one of the top three apprentice jockeys in the country. It was the first time a jockey who rides exclusively at Camarero was considered. And it was tremendously exciting. 
I was able to interview Angel Diaz and publish a piece in the Pollock Report trying to help the public understand who these Latin American jockeys are and why they're so successful, Walter. All right. Well, first of all, let's identify the journal that was published. The Pollock Report published the piece on Angel Diaz, and I have a piece with the Blood Horse um, on specifically the Puerto Rican Jockey School. And those are racing journals or those, equine journals. Two huge top-tier equine journals. All right. Well, let's talk about that, that first article where you explore the background of these uh, Latin American jockeys. I've written a couple pieces. I did a, My first big piece was on Luis Saez, Panamanian, excellent writer. I don't know, Walter, if you watched the Kentucky Derby this year with maximum security. I think most people know what happened, yes. even if they don't care about horse racing. A brief recap would be that maximum security crossed the finish line first and for the first time in 145 years of derby racing was disqualified and country house was declared the winner. The owners of maximum security, Gary and Mary West, are suing and Luis Saez suffered a tremendous amount of unfriendly commentary as well as a 15-day racing suspension. Now, if you think, Walter, that you think about a jockey, I mean, not everybody understands if you have a 12, if you have a day of racing and there's 12 races that day, a good jockey might be riding in nine of those races. I mean, they're off one horse and on another, off one horse and on another. So if you think about a 15-day suspension, what that does to you it's crippling. Because he, you're paid by the race, correct? Correct. So, and it knocks you out of racing. You know, each jockey has an agent. These agents work hard to get certain positions for jockeys. Um, so Luis Saez is actually appealing his suspension. And so I began the injustice of the situation, whether you want to take it from the disqualification itself, but moreover, the comments made about Luis Saez's writing prompted me to write a piece um, on Luis Saez and the Kentucky Derby and Maximum Security that was the first piece I published in The Blood Horse. And it was a neat thing for me because at the same time that it was something that I felt very passionately about because it, it became a very racialized language. Okay, um, And there is a very racialized language historically in talking about Latino jockeys, even when they're successful. And I want to talk a little bit about that in a minute. But it also sort of fed my need to take the profession of history, take these types of investigations and make it more relevant to a broader public. And so I began writing for not just academic journals, but Blood Horse and Pollock Report, and writing in a style that conveyed information to an equine enthusiast or someone who wanted to read more about what happened in the Derby, and you didn't have to wade through 35 pages to take away the importance and, and the historical and political significance. Well, can you give us a brief summary of your first article about the Derby from last year? Sure. I talked about um, Luis Saez. Uh, Panamanian, um, trained at the at the famous Panama Jockey School, the Lafitte Pincai Jockey School, named for one of the best Panamanian jockeys, came to the United States. He's from um, his two brothers are jockeys as well. One of his the Kentucky Derby is is prestigious because it's such a hard to win race. Okay, you get as I said one shot when you're a three year old, and Luis Saez has won many many things. He had never won the Derby. Uh, he won it with maximum security, and then it was taken away. What I found, among other things, was is how how hard it is to be a jockey and have the public say things, say things about Panamanians, say things about Latinos, not understand the sacrifices that jockeys make from anywhere from the hours that they work to the number of races they ride to the injuries to the calls of foul to the incredible diet to keep your weight down to 115 pounds and less. 115. Correct. And, and still have the muscle to ride a 1,200-pound animal 
at, you know, 35 miles an hour. And on top of that, maneuver in the traffic that it takes. Because a large part of horse racing isn't just having the fastest horse. It's finding the opening, putting your horse in position, knowing when to hold back and when to go. Well, I'm sure like tens of millions of Americans, we saw the replay of the Derby yes. and sections of it. And it was the maneuvering for space that raised the issue, correct? You know, the replay is a good question, and Gary West brought that up, that it was a very specific snippet that was re-shown and re-shown and re-shown. Interestingly, this year at the Eclipse Awards, which has a ton of awards that are given, Best Media Eclipse Award went to a picture of, of War of Will. It looks like it's, – it's a picture, let's put it this way, that did not come out when the Derby debacle was in question. Okay, it came out in December, and it looks like War of Will running into maximum security. And I actually was at the Eclipse Awards, and I saw Luis again. And um, he's such a lovely human being. He introduced me to his wife, and we were talking about things. And I said, Luis, where was that picture seven months ago? And he smiled at me. It's a good question. So I don't know that his case against Churchill Downs is resolved. Um, I don't know that he served the 15-day suspension. Right now, he's riding high at Gulfstream Park. He's doing a great job at the Gulfstream Park meeting currently, one of the best jockeys in the country. Gabby, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Professor Gabby Coonsley about horse racing in South Carolina. All right. You have been identifying these, these men by um, their birth country. Are they here on work visas? Are they becoming American citizens? Right. So some are citizens. Some are on work visas. There are, like I said, the top 10 jockeys in the country are Latino. And I began to read, Walter, there's not a lot of, in fact, there's very little academic work done on on jockeys and less on Latino jockeys. And so I was reading all kinds of articles from magazines for popular consumption. Sports Illustrated used to do a lot on it. And there's an, there is a disturbing tendency. And I'm beginning here with Bill Leggett's 1962 piece when Latino jockeys really begin to take over horse racing. And the most watched sport in the 1950s and 60s was horse racing. And we've got Braulio Baeza of Panama. We've got Mani Icaza also of Panama. We've got all these jockeys winning the Derby in 63. This is the era when sports writers begin to dedicate some attention to these Latino jockeys, okay? And the piece that's considered almost a foundational text is the 1962 piece in Sports Illustrated, The Vaults by Bill Leggett, and he entitled it The Latin Invasion, okay? So we get, to begin with, the title tells you a lot, Mm-hmm. Leggett admires the ability of the writers, but the reason that he says they're so successful is because Latin Americans are small by nature. They're all poor and starving. They're all trying to escape the hell that is Latin America, and they're lucky. And this sort of rationale comes up again and again. I know you won't believe it, but it comes up all the time. In fact, in 2015, Victor Espinosa of Mexican origin won the Triple Crown for the first time in 35 years on American Pharaoh. When he won this race, he's the first Latino to ever do so. Instead of being celebrated as such, the headlines would come out that say things like, ex-bus driver has horsepower now, okay? Emphasizing it was sort of a rags-to-riches story. Espinosa drove a bus in Mexico City, and now he drives fast horses. Sort of no training, anybody can do it, lucky guy. Well, I was thinking about the comment of they're all small, then I think about for more than a century, the influx of Latin American baseball players. That's right. Sammy Sosa? I mean, they're... Yes. The Alu brothers... I mean, these are not peewees. These are not peewees, and you make a great point. Manuel Burgos put out what I think is probably the best history book I've ever read. It's called Playing America's Game. Anyone can read it. It's brilliant. And he has a platform, online platform, called Biba Baseball, in which he has a blog in which he talks about Latino baseball playing. But he'll show you not only that they weren't small, 
in stature or in terms of what they achieved, but that Major League Baseball integrated sports before official declarations of racial integration through Latino ballplayers. So his book is brilliant. So you're exactly right. Not all Latinos are small. And what's left out of these narratives is, how do these guys learn to ride? Right? It's never included. And so... I mean, it's it's not that they are gauchos on no. the Argentine plains. It's not the same thing. No. Not only are, are most of them not Argentine, although there are some, uh, being a gaucho riding around, taking care of cows, is not like riding... California chrome wire to wire. It's just like a cowboy can't come out of Wyoming or Montana and run Ascot in England. Exactly. That's exactly right. So the question is, I began to look at, um, and it was exacerbated by the contemporary context, which is um, a difficult period, especially for Latinos in the United States. And the president himself said, Latin America is sending us their worst. They're sending us drug addicts and and dealers and rapists. Uh, that was sort of the extreme end of extremely derogatory statements made. But there's also within this economic crisis within the United States, the idea that Latinos are stealing our jobs or alternatively that the Latinos are okay as long as they do the jobs that quote unquote nobody else will do, right? So how does this fit into horse racing? If you begin to think for two seconds about horse racing you be- and begin to look at Latin America, what you find out is in the 1960s, horse racing schools, jockey academies were set up in Puerto Rico, in Canobanas, Puerto Rico, in, in Panama City, which has re- been renamed the Lafitte Pincai Jockey School, and in Mexico City, uh, Las Americas, okay, is it Las Americas racetrack? So you've got these jockey schools in the 1960s that nobody's talking about. So to sort of jump ahead, what is Latin America sending us? They're sending us their highly trained professionals, and yet in the discourse about Latino jockeys, they still appear as lucky, as victorious because they're small, or as best suited for work with animals because of some sort of innate love for agriculture and ability to handle horses. Gabriela Nunez put out a great piece on the Latino pastoral narrative. Uh, She's in literature, but she had a gig in Kentucky and couldn't help but write this piece again and again about how the equine industry praises Latinos. They do. They'll go to bat for the H2 visas. There is a space for Latinos within horse racing, but it also has a ceiling, right? You're only supposed to raise to a certain level, okay? And you see this again and again. So these schools in Latin America are producing these amazing jockeys. The Irado Ortiz that I mentioned, Jose Ortiz, um, Eric Cancel, who's been winning three races a day since Valentine's Day and ra- racing very well before that. And where is he racing now? He's racing at Aqueduct, Manifranco. Or Aqueducts in New York. Aqueducts in New York. Um, Christian Torres racing at Gulfstream right now. Um, these are all products of the Puerto Rican jockey school. Luis Saez, he came out of the Panamanian jockey school. Victor Espinosa, not ex-bus driver, has horsepower now. He went to the Mexican jockey school. So I said, okay, this is crazy. They're billing these guys as lucky when they're highly trained professionals. So I wrote a grant and spent all last July in Puerto Rico at the jockey school. Oh, to give you a comparison, if the Puerto Rican jockey school, the Latin American jockey schools are founded in the 1960s, the United States initiates a jockey school in Lexington, Kentucky, as part of Bluegrass Community College. Uh, Chris McCarron, the Hall of Fame jockey, helped found this. It's called the North American Riding Academy, or NADA. But that wasn't founded until 2006. Now, I'm not here to tell you that every great rider came out of jockey school, but it does make a difference, especially in Latin America. The big three would be Mexico City, Panama, and Puerto Rico. Um, Joel Zosario, top, top three writers in the country out of the Dominican Republic. Um, Edgar Prado, 
Peruvian. Peru has a jockey school. I'm hoping that my Andes interest, my deep roots in the Andes, and my horse racing project come together there. So what you realize is, is that Latin America is sending you their very best, and they're highly trained professionals. So I went down in July. I rented a place as close to the racetrack as I could possibly find, not at a resort, not near the beaches, in Canobanas. And I got up at 5 o'clock every day. I was at the barns by six, and you watched these students. I should say first, to become a student at the Escuela Vocacional Hípica in Puerto Rico, you have to do an interview with the director, Ana Velázquez, and the teachers, Carmelo Hernández, Emilia Salinas, and Wilfredo Lozano. You have to weigh 103 pounds. Yes, 103 pounds. At what age? It depends. The Puerto Rican Jockey School has a high school component. If you want to stay, they'll do horses 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. And then if you don't have your high school degree, you'll stay 2 p.m. till 6 p.m. It is not optional. Okay? So a lot of these kids are 16, 17, 18. And they weigh 103. They weigh 103 pounds, and they're strong as I'll get out. All right. You talked, you mentioned earlier is that obviously jockeys have to watch their weight because the cap is 115 pounds. Mm -hmm. What are their meals like? I mean, I, I think about the meal tables for football players and, and that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, uh, and the guys who can consume 6,000 calories at a sitting. Right. What is their typical meal like? Protein and vegetables and water, which is hard to do because in Puerto Rico, there's only one racetrack. Okay, Camarero is only one racetrack. It's one of the few racetracks in the world named for a horse. Camarero won 56 consecutive victories, a Puerto Rican horse. At Camarero Racetrack, these kids will drive common distance 50 minutes to get to jockey school. So they'll be getting up at 4 a.m. to start driving at 5 a.m. to get there by 6 a.m. Then from 6 a.m. till 11 a.m., they um, will be working, and they don't just, it's not like they have other people getting the horses ready for them to practice. They're actually doing all the prep themselves. They're grooming the animals. They're feeding the animals. They're, they're cleaning the stalls. The yes, they're doing everything. And it's um, divided into four separate phases. It's a very, very organized program. From 11 to 2, the kids are in classes in the afternoon, history of the animal and of horse racing, professional etiquette, English, and gym. Okay, So it's a very, very regimented program. It is humbling to spend time with them. Many of them are balancing things outside the school as well, and yet they have this razor vision. Okay, I would go to the, all the mucking of the stalls, the preparation of the animals, and then I would go to the racetrack. The training track is located on the inside of the main track. So even if you're just beginning to ride on a racetrack, going by you in your peripheral vision are famous jockeys, top racehorses. It's a wild community. Um, so much talent, so many amazing trainers and jockeys. And these kids, like I said, 16, 17, 18, 19, 19 years old, when they're, if the program is two years in your second year, you are at the main track, and you, you have to hustle the trainers for a ride. So what you're trying to do is make relationships with trainers because you hope in the future they'll give you horses for the student races or if you become a jockey for an official race. Are they, go, they go two years. Do they then have any, some kind of apprenticeship? How do they do – do you become certified as a jockey? Yes, you get a jockey's license. And then your first year out, you're a bug boy or an apprentice, okay? It means that if someone decides to employ you as a jockey, uh, you carry a little bit less weight to try and make it attractive for trainers to try and ride, uh, try new riders. But these kids go out and the racetrack, I mean, you've got all the trainers there. You've got horses coming off, you know. you got sometimes horses get loose or people go down or horses go down. And, and the kids walk up and they'll talk to the groom or the trainer. The groom is very important too. And try to 
get a gig, which is to exercise an animal they might not know at all. You have to learn how to sell yourself in a very small amount of time to present yourself, to ask if you might exercise this animal today. And then if you get the animal, um, they'll be watching to see what you can do. It is a job with such a huge amount of responsibility that demands verbal skills, social networking. You don't just jump off the animal and leave. You need to talk about this is what I felt. This is, you know, how he responded to. All right. I'm thinking since the schools go on year after year, how many do they graduate a year? Okay. And what do these kids do? Do they find jobs? I mean, um, the I mean, schools, it is not uncommon and you can probably figure out why from the description of the program, the commitment needed, the extreme discipline needed for um, only half the students to graduate. So if you graduate 10, that's an on average size. Okay. And do they then find jobs? Maybe, I mean, I'm not just thinking specifically in Puerto Rico around the United States, but I would imagine since horse racing is very popular in Central and South America. Right. That they would find jobs somewhere there? Sure. You can find jobs. And Latin America has a huge equine tradition and its own organized sports. In the 1960s, they established the Caribbean Confederation of Horse Racing, which is a confederation of nine countries that come together and race the best horses from each country. And it would rotate from Panama to Mexico to Puerto Rico. It's been run the last two or three years at Gulfstream Park in Miami, Florida, because Puerto Rico's racetrack uh, suffered extreme damage during Hurricane Maria. So you'll bring in the Triple Crown winner from the Dominican Republic. You'll bring in fantastic horses from Mexico. You'll bring in Triple Crown winner from Puerto Rico. A horse came from Jamaica this year, Supreme Soul. And so what you have to understand is these jockey schools don't pop up strictly as a way of immigrating to the United States. They respond to a huge equine culture that exists within Latin America as well. All right, which was part of the colonial experience mm -hmm. because Spaniards brought excellent horses. I mean, the Spaniards brought Arabian horses into the New World. Absolutely, yes, but it's become a hallmark of national identities. Okay. All right, one quick question. We talked earlier in South Carolina where we have harness racing, we have steeplechase, we have... Polo, flat racing. Okay. A horse trains for one particular kind, correct? Sure, sure. We have eventing as well. What does eventing mean? Jumping. Oh, okay. Yes. So there's movement. A lot of these horses, especially the thoroughbreds, begin as flat racers. If you get injured, if it's not your thing, many times you, you are repurposed for a second career. Many thoroughbreds become polo ponies. Many of them become eventers. Some go to steeplechase. But I should say, too, in Aiken there are some Argentines in charge of developing polo ponies especially. They're developing a special sort of breed of polo pony. But many of these horses are repurposed and have second and third careers. And it's a very important thing, especially as the thoroughbreds are racing fewer and fewer years because the money is in the breeding shed and less on the track these days. All right. One of the dangers of horse racing, it seems, is, is not just to the jockey, but it's also to the, to the animal itself. Uh, and Santa Anita's had a real problem this past year. Santa Anita's had a hard problem. Some people talk about uh, climactic conditions. California had an inordinate amount of rain, um, and then they would have a lot of drought, that the irregularity produced by global warming was a huge factor. Others talked about synthetic versus dirt tracks. Others talked about the pressure that trainers are under to race horses. In the United States, they race horses much younger than in Europe. They're racing two-year-olds. Um, most people aren't going to race two-year-olds around the world because their bones, I mean, if you, if you spend time in a trainer's barn, they're constantly taking x-rays to see if the gaps as their bones grow are closing up because a horse in that sense has to be sound or their leg can snap. The protesters of horse racing, listen, everybody wants the horses to be safe. Everybody wants the jockeys to be safe. How we do it, I guess, is a million-dollar question. Santa Anita has now installed, I think it's a, a CAT scan machine uh, at the track itself. Um, they've upped the number of veterinarians. We have more horses 
pulled from races if the vet sees anything when they get up in the morning and you think, Walter, how you and I get up? You know, you may take a step or two out of bed to the left. The vet will pull you from the race. I think there's an obvious middle ground there. Oscar de la Torre, who has taken on the role of becoming sort of the voice of the backstretch workers, uh, backstretch meaning the people who work in the stalls behind the scenes, the grooms, the hot walkers, several of the exercise riders, he'll go out and, um, and try to speak at these sort of confrontations or sites of difference. And hats off to Ray Pollock of the Pollock Report for publishing this. There is a clip that's quite important where De La Torre goes over to the protesters, those who want to shut down horse racing. It was hot in California, and he offers them a bottle of water. And they yell at him to go back to his side of the street. Some of them yell, in fact, go back to your taco stand. So the language is becoming very racialized in terms of looking at Latinos, the high percentage of Latinos in racing. And De La Torre said himself, he said, I really wonder what the agenda is. Is it to denigrate further the Latino? Is it to shut down horse racing? Or is it both? All right. Well, Alfred has given me the wind-up sign. Gabrielle Coonsley, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journey. Thanks so much for having me, Walter. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. I quite frankly found it a fascinating conversation with someone whom I've known for 15 years, but her journey from traditional Latin American historian to basically historian of horse racing is a fascinating segue. And since horse racing has been a part of our South Carolina culture for more than 200 years, it brought it all into perspective. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.